will come to order. Uh, good morning, everyone. Thank you for joining us this morning. And uh, Assistant Secretary Stillwell, I'm delighted to welcome you to testify before the committee for the first time in your new role. Uh, since your confirmation on June 1, I believe you've uh, been in at least uh, 10 Indo-Pacific countries. You've had an opportunity to engage with our allies and partners and to begin to tackle the challenges and seize the opportunities in this vital region and also assess what needs to be done to advance American interests in the administration's Indo-Pacific strategy. Uh, and so we uh, have asked you here today to share your observations on these topics and to discuss the priorities and initiatives you plan to focus on in your role. I want to start with something that both houses of Congress are intensely focused on in a very bipartisan manner, I might add, and that is the situation in Hong Kong. What we see in Hong Kong is particularly significant, uh, is a particularly significant example of the Chinese Communist Party's long record of broken commitments. The uh, uh, Communist Party's promise that Hong Kong would maintain a high degree of autonomy was not just a verbal understanding, it was a commitment China made when it signed the Sino-British Joint Declaration in 1984. This summer's protests reflect years of frustration by the Hong Kong people, who were seen an evaporation of their fundamental rights and freedoms. Though China calls uh, this an internal affair, the United States has a distinct relationship with Hong Kong comprised of multiple formal agreements and other forms of cooperation. We have a legitimate interest in what happens there. U.S. policy should be focused on holding China accountable to its commitments regarding Hong Kong, and we must also support the Hong Kong people in pursuit of the rights and freedoms they were promised. With those factors in mind, this committee is working on bipartisan legislation spearheaded by Senators Rubio and Senator Cardin. The Foreign Relations and Banking Committees are uh, also recently sent a letter to the administration regarding the adequacy of U.S. export controls with respect to Hong Kong. I look forward to hearing uh, you regarding messages the U.S. government is sending to the Chinese Communist Party on Hong Kong and, importantly, our best options for supporting the Hong Kong people. China's actions in Hong Kong and elsewhere will, of course, figure prominently in today's conversation. However, I think it's important that we hold a, a hearing examining the whole region, the Indo-Pacific uh, home to three of the world's largest economies, and five of the United States' seven treaty allies would be important to the United States even if China was not a factor. We have a significant interest in building on the alliances, partnerships, and connections that have grown between the United States and the region for over 200 years. My home state is a case in point. It, is, it uh, has long and deep U.S. ties with the Indo-Pacific. The value of Idaho's exports to Asia was $2.1 billion in 2018. More than 80% of Idaho's exports are sold directly to countries in the Pacific Basin. Multiple Indo-Pacific countries have deep and long-standing economic investments in Idaho. In fact, Taiwan is our second largest source of foreign investment, exceeded only by Canada. And since 2009, we have been the proud home of a Singaporean F-15 training squadron at the Mountain Home Idaho Air Force Base. Idahoans are familiar with some of the challenges uh, posed in this region as well. An example I raise often is Micron uh, technology based in Boise. Their intellectual property was stolen by a Chinese company, 
who then patented that technology in China and sued Micron. This example speaks to the importance of the United States remaining economically engaged with the region. It is imperative that we work to ensure open markets, fair trading practices, and most importantly, the rule of law and adherence thereto. Anything less is unacceptable. With all that in mind, we need to support strengthening our allies and growing our partnerships on every front. In the last couple of years, the administration has announced multiple initiatives focused on the Indo-Pacific, and we look forward to hearing about progress and what more is required. There are a lot of areas where, we need, uh, where the need for that cooperation is evident. We need to reinvigorate our alliance with Thailand uh, following the election earlier this year, uh, while continuing to, to message to them the importance of freedom of expression and democratic consolidation. The Pacific Islands are an area that is ripe for greater U.S. engagement, and I was glad to see Secretary Pompeo recently announced negotiations regarding compact extensions. We have to maintain our focus on safeguarding the global commons, especially in light of China's assertive behavior in Vietnam's exclusive economic zone. And the coming months are important with respect to U.S. policy uh, towards Myanmar as that nation heads toward elections in 2020. I look forward to discussing these and many other issues. With that, uh, Senator Menendez. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, thank you, Assistant Secretary Stilwell, for joining us today, almost three years into the Trump administration. It's uh, nice to have a confirmed Assistant Secretary finally in place. I think you'll find a great deal of agreement on this committee about the importance of the Indo-Pacific for the future of our security and prosperity in addressing the China challenge. We all know the statistics about the region's economic dynamism, the number of the world's major militaries, the nuclear proliferation challenges, the governance challenges, the opportunity to grow regional architecture. Likewise, and I know it may be a surprise uh, for some to hear this, but I agree with the Trump administration's idea behind its Indo-Pacific strategy. But the administration has yet to demonstrate how this strategy will be fully resourced and properly implemented, or that it is a policy that actually makes us more competitive with China, not just more confrontational towards China. China's rise presents something different from our experience of the past 240 years. A nation with an economy equal or greater than our own, and a competitor across every dimension of power. With Xi Jinping declaring himself president for life, cracking down on civil society and human rights, introducing an Orwellian system of mass surveillance, advancing militarily in the South China Sea, and economically in Africa and the Western Hemisphere. Over the past three decades, China has sought to emerge as a regional military hegemon including through increasingly provocative behavior in the maritime domain, which directly affects U.S. interests, including the free flow of commerce, freedom of navigation, and in the peaceful resolution of disputes consistent with international law. When it comes to trade over the past decade, we have witnessed China increasingly bend the rules to its own benefit in order to secure its position as the world's second largest economy. So we agree on the challenge and I think we would all welcome the emergence of a China that follows established international economic rules, supports inter international institutions, laws, and norms. But thus far, the Trump administration's China policy does not seem to be having an effect in shaping or deterring China. For example, China's aggressive maritime activities in the South China Sea 
and ongoing building of infrastructure that could easily be turned to military use continues unchecked. China has yet to make any significant concessions and any of the deep structural issues at the heart of our trade and economic imbalance. Instead, China is going toe-to-toe -to -toe in a good and easy-to-win trade war, and our economy is suffering. China's Belt and Road continues to expand and make inroads around the world. China continues to provide support for North Korea, even as North Korea continues to move forward with its missile and nuclear programs unconstrained while the United States no longer conducts necessary military readiness exercises on the peninsula. China's digital authoritarianism continues apace with ever greater repression at home and exporting fully installed systems for despots around the globe. China's great leap backwards on human rights and governance is gathering momentum with the administration conspicuously silent as the people of Xinjiang and Tibet suffer and Chinese civil society space is crushed. Beijing continues to squeeze Taipei, including this week the loss of yet another of Taiwan's diplomatic allies on Trump's watch. The list goes on. If this is what winning with China looks like, I am truly tired to the point of exhaustion. We must remember that merely being more confrontational with China does not make us more competitive with China. We have to leverage all of the tools in our toolkit. We must resource the Indo-Pacific strategy. The administration is still far below the Indo-Pacific resourcing for our diplomacy and development of the final years of the Obama administration. Last week, I met with a senior elected official from an allied government in the region who told me that, quote, we have to rebuild our crumbling alliance. I'm not naive enough to take what people tell me at their face at face value, but one only has to look around the region to know that those words ring true. We have to address our own economic challenges and ensure America can compete with China as it assumes a global role through the Belt and Road Initiative. We must work with recipient Belt and Road countries to strengthen their ability to negotiate good terms for Chinese investment or else risk having the rule of law in these developing nations washed away in a flood of Chinese cash. We can help set standards, offer technical and diplomatic support, stand up for human rights, including for labor and the environment, and support institutions that empower the weak to pursue justice with the strong. As I prepare new legislation to bolster our economic diplomacy and statecraft, I hope we can all agree that such efforts must be paired with bold efforts to prepare the American people to succeed in this new world. So let me end this morning by making one last comment that I share with the chairman about, and that's Hong Kong, which I know will address in the course of the hearing, and where I'm working with colleagues on bipartisan legislation on the Hong Kong Human Rights and Democracy Act. The special character of Hong Kong is one of the world's great success stories. The vibrancy of the people of Hong Kong and their economic success and their yearning for democracy and self-governance is inspirational. It is critical that the United States stand with the people of Hong Kong. I've been disturbed by some of the rhetoric from the senior most levels of this administration regarding Hong Kong over the past several months, as well as the suggestions that Hong Kong might be on the cho chopping block for a trade deal. So I look forward this morning, uh, Mr. Secretary, to a clear and uncompromising statement about our support for the people of Hong Kong in their quest to maintain their self-governance and autonomy to safeguard their human rights and their exercise of democratic freedoms. 
of speech, of assembly, to select their own leaders and to determine their own future. I hope that we'll hear that from you, and I thank the chairman. Thank you, Senator Menendez. Um, for uh, everybody's information, we have the usual challenges today, uh, or at least frequent challenge, and that is we have three votes scheduled at 11 o'clock. So uh, I think uh, probably what we'll do is uh, uh, rotate out the uh, uh, presiding while I go down and vote, and, uh, but I think we can get through this uh, as, as we usually do. So with that, uh, Mr. Stilwell, thank you so much uh, for coming. Uh, David Stilwell is the Assistant Secretary of State for the Bureau of East Asian and Pacific Affairs. Prior to his appointment as, as Assistant Secretary, he served in the Air Force for 35 years, beginning as an enlisted Korean linguist in 1980 and retiring in 2015 with the rank of Brigadier General as the Asia Super uh, Advisor to the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs. He served multiple tours of duty in Japan and Korea as a linguist, a fighter pilot, and a commander. He also served as the Defense Attaché at the U.S. Embassy in Beijing, People's Republic of China from 2011 to 2013. Assistant Secretary Stilwell, welcome. We're anxious to hear your remarks. Thank you, Chairman. Chairman Risch, Ranking Member Menendez, members of this committee, thank you for the opportunity to appear before you and to discuss U.S. policy in the Indo-Pacific region, including Hong Kong alliances and partnerships and other issues. During my first months in office, I have worked with Secretary Pompeo to advance the administration's Indo-Pacific strategy. Our approach recognizes the region's central global importance and central role in American foreign policy, as underscored by the President's national security strategy. Our vision for a free and open Indo-Pacific is built on common principles that have benefited all countries in the region, including respect for the sovereignty and independence of all nations, regardless of size. U.S. engagement upholds enduring principles, freedom of the seas, market-based economics, and open investment environments, free, fair, reciprocal trade, and good governance. Respect for human rights and fundamental freedoms and friendly relations among nations based on respect for the principle of equal rights and self-determination of peoples. These are not just U.S. values, they are shared globally and across the Indo-Pacific region. ASEAN's recent outlook on the Indo-Pacific recognizes and upholds many of the same values as essential for peace and prosperity, as do the regional visions of Japan, South Korea, India, Taiwan, and other partners. With respect to the economic pillar of the Indo-Pacific strategy, the State Department is focusing on three main areas, infrastructure, energy, and the digital economy. We are working with our interagency partners to promote open markets, high standards of transparency, and free, fair, and reciprocal trade. Our economic initiatives help uh, the countries in the region use private sector investment as the path to sustainable development. In August, Secretary Pompeo announced nearly $30 million for the energy development through the Japan-U.S. Mekong Power Partnership, or JUMP, building on our Asia Edge Regional Energy Initiative announced by the Secretary last year. This month, we enhanced our infrastructure transaction and assistance network by launching a transaction advisory fund to help countries negotiate complex infrastructure deals. With respect to governance, we seek to build capacity for good governance and adherence to international law, rules, and standards. This will strengthen civil society and democratic institutions, counter corruption, and help countries attract high-quality financing necessary to fuel their economic development while securing their sovereignty. We are implementing well over 200 governance programs under our whole of government Indo-Pacific Transparency Initiative, and we are identifying new areas of cooperation with like-minded partners. On the security front, our aim is to build a flexible, resilient network of like-minded security partners to promote regional stability, 
ensure freedom navigation and other lawful uses of the sea, and address shared challenges in the region. Last year, Secretary Pompeo committed nearly $300 million in security assistance to improve maritime domain awareness in order to protect critical sea lanes. In addition to implementing this assistance, we launched a new program in August to counter transnational crime along the Mekong, and just last week we conducted the first ever U.S. ASEAN maritime security exercise. We have also seen continued significant progress in our relationship with India, including through the quadrilateral dialogue with Japan and Australia. The Secretary's travel to Thailand, Australia, and the Federated States of Micronesia in August reinforced these elements of our strategy. I'll be happy to discuss details as you may wish. Also happy to discuss upcoming engagements, such as the second Indo-Pacific Business Forum scheduled for 4 November in Bangkok on the sidelines of the East Asia Summit. But now I'd like to close uh, with a note on China, Hong Kong, and Taiwan. The United States seeks a constructive and results-oriented relationship with China grounded in fairness and respect for sovereignty. The Trump administration has emphasized the imperative to compete with China. This does not mean we seek conflict, nor does it preclude cooperation when our interests align. Yet we will not shy away from exposing and contesting actions that undermine the free and open international order that has fostered peace and prosperity in the Indo-Pacific for decades. We have repeatedly expressed our concern over China's actions to bully Taiwan through economic coercion, squeezing Taiwan's international space, and poaching diplomatic partners. These actions undermine the cross-strait status quo, which has created peace and benefited both sides of the strait for decades. Meanwhile, Beijing's military modernization continues at a breakneck pace. The United States has an abiding interest in peace and stability across the Taiwan Strait. The U.S. has for decades maintained our support for Taiwan's ability to maintain a sufficient self-defense capability, and we will continue to support an effective deterrence capability for Taiwan. U.S. arms sales to Taiwan are informed by the Taiwan's Relation Act and based on continuing assessments of Taiwan's defense needs. To meet those needs, in 2019 alone, this administration approved and notified Congress of potential sales of more than $10 billion critical defensive equipment, including Stinger missiles and F-16 aircraft. Nor will we be silent about the Chinese government's repression at home, including Xinjiang and Tibet. In Hong Kong, we support freedom and expression of peaceful assembly. Protesters in Hong Kong are only asking Beijing to keep its promises made in the Joint Declaration of Basic Law. Beijing has responded by repeatedly blaming uh, U.S. government for black hand tactics and publicly identified U.S. diplomatic personnel, putting them at risk. China has provided no evidence of a black hand behind the protests in Hong Kong because it does not exist. Hong Kongers looked to the streets, took to the streets because Beijing is undermining its own one country, two systems framework. As Secretary Pompeo has observed, the protesters are asking that Beijing uphold its commitments. And as President Trump has said, we seek a humane resolution to the protests. Thank you for the opportunity to speak to you today, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Secretary, uh, I'm, we're going to do a five-minute uh, round of questions right now, and I'm going to uh, take part of my time here uh, right out of the shoot to ask a couple questions. What, number one, what do you view as uh, uh, the most effective thing we can do as far as supporting uh, the people of Hong Kong? Senator, we can uh, continue our support, uh, both rhetorical and uh, legal, as emphasized by the Hong Kong Policy Act. Uh, we can, um, again, be uh, vocal, not just the administration, but the Congress as well, uh, in um, addressing the uh, issues. And I'd say that we have uh, already been successful in that uh, Carrie Lam has backed out and withdrawn the um, Extradition Act, which was the origins of this 
uh, um, the current friction. So I would take a little credit, uh, U.S. government, on uh, having applied sufficient pressure uh, and encouraged Beijing to do the right thing in Hong Kong. I appreciate that. Overnight, I don't know if you saw or not, but the Hong Kong government opened a dialogue office, supposedly for a dialogue with uh, protests. Do you think that's going to have any uh, significant effect, or is that more cosmetic than anything else? Senator, I think um, any dialogue or any addressing of the uh, protesters' concerns is, is, will be effective. And it does give them both a voice that they uh, ask for and uh, the option to execute their choice uh, of uh, government. Again, as we preserve, as the, um, the Hong Kong, or as the Joint Declaration provides for 50 years of autonomy uh, as they adjust to this one ch uh, China, two systems process. So yes, I do think the uh, dialogue, uh, especially an open dialogue, will have the, the desired effect. I appreciate that. Um, I think most Americans aren't aware of the, the, the new initiative in China, a relatively new initiative in China, regarding the social credit system. And uh, I, I wonder if you could talk about that for a minute. I, I kind of view this like the opposite of our social security uh, system. Our social security system is put in place to uh, give benefits to people that need it and keep track of it. And the social credits in China is just the opposite. It's set up to receive benefits, the government to receive benefits from the people, and also to keep track of it, which which is stunning the way they're they're uh, keeping track of what uh, people do in order to gain these so-called social credits uh, with the government. Could you talk about that for a minute? Yes, Senator. Thank you for that question. Um, what the Chinese government is proposing, and what Xi Jinping has published two volumes on, titled "The Governance of China." is a new type, a new way of governing, both domestically and increasingly we're seeing globally. Uh, this type of governance uh, is not what we're used to, not what uh, Francis Fukuyama declared as the end of history. Uh, systems that recognize the uh, interests of the people who are governed and the right for those people to, to uh, identify uh, the types of government they want. Uh, what the new type system uh, looks at is uh, you know, a government that sees itself as able to identify what's best for its people um, and then in institute activities such as you mentioned with the social credit system to uh, identify that. The, the definition of human rights is interesting in that uh, we consider individual human rights. The United Nations Charter identifies the rights of individuals, and this system identifies a broader sense of uh, the needs of the many uh, override the needs of the few. And so it is a different approach to uh, how you uh, run a country and how you govern both, again, in China and outside. As social credit goes, it, that uh, particular um, approach to governance uh, is basically a substitute for trust. And, and as I said in my hearing, I, I want to make sure that we don't demonize everything. Is, there's room for engagement. There's certainly room for competition, as uh, Senator Menendez said. But... Um, so rather than, uh, I do like, I would, will do my best to see both the positives and negatives. In this social credit thing, it's hard to see a lot of positives um, in that uh, anything you do uh, online, um, who you associate with, those things are, uh, you know, tallied and used uh, against you uh, or for you, you know, in determining your uh, reliability and your uh, buy-in to this system of government. And so I think more will come out on this subject. The... Um, 
implications are uh, enormous, especially in a very digital and, and technical uh, leadership system that includes uh, surveillance. Um, and we're seeing that surveillance, especially in places like Xinjiang and other places. So uh, I, I'm happy to go further if you'd like. Thank you. I appreciate that. And I, I, I also view it, it seems to me, as a way for the government to surveil uh, its people to keep track uh, to keep track of its people uh, overall. So thank you. Senator Menendez. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Mr. Secretary, do you believe that our China policy is a function of our Indo-Pacific strategy or that our Indo-Pacific strategy uh, and policy is a function of our China strategy? So that's a great question. On my desk, I have a piece it's of paper. The only ones I ask here are great questions. <laughs> no, 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 no. I mean, I, vote on that? I mean that sincerely. On my desk, I'm, I have. I'm willing to take a vote on that. <laughs> <laughs> Secret ballot. <laughs> I'm sorry. All right, I'm losing my time here. I mean, it's not a chicken or egg question. It's, no, it's no. rather it's important elements of strategy and and priority flow from how one defines. Uh, their strategic goals and then aligns the, you know, uh, the ends, the ways and means to achieve it. So that's why I'm asking. Uh, thank you. Uh, on my desk, I have a piece of paper that, you know, printed from a uh, management school that identifies the differences between policy and strategy, and they, they quite often uh, get confused. And uh, certainly I'm one of those who confuses it. Uh, but I do think, uh, in, in general, our strategy uh, certainly informs the policy. Uh, I'm taking it in that regard. And, you know, the policy, the, the Indo-Pacific strategy uh, addresses U.S. interests in the region, uh, economic, uh, diplomat, or, uh, security, and, and governance interests. And then from those come decisions that we make on individual actions and decisions uh, that we make that end up generating our policy. And so in the broadest terms, the Indo-Pacific strategy, um, again, seeks to identify those things that are um, our particular strengths. And in this case, I think governance, having just addressed uh, the chairman's question, governance is the, the um, clearest leader and the one we haven't talked about in the, in the recent past. And like we said, we've assumed that uh, open democratic systems and free market economies are, are obvious, but in, that's no longer the case. We can no longer assume that. And so again, I think the strategy, the, uh, strategy as we look at the economic leg in particular, addresses that. Yeah. But what I'm trying to understand is, does our China policy, is that a function of what we look at the Indo-Pacific region, or is the Indo-Pacific policy a function of how we look at China and its strategy? Is, is one driving the other? So thank you for that clarification. And this is not all about China. Uh, and so that's why an Indo-Pacific strategy that looks at the region writ large, and in the region, of course, is the China. China. And it's the largest part, um, is certainly in terms of challenges. Uh, but there's many opportunities there as well. And then recent travel has really shown a, uh, an understanding of that as we um, broadcast this and then inform and get out personally with the uh, leadership. In this most recent uh, trip to Timor-Leste, Indonesia, uh, Brunei, and Singapore, we had many opportunities to clarify these questions you're asking as well, mm -hmm. is where they fit into the strategy. Uh, and then, again, is this all about China? And I just restate that it is not. Let me move to Hong Kong. On September 8th, thousands of Hong Kongers went to the streets marching towards the U.S. consulate, calling on the U.S. to pass and support the Hong Kong Human Rights and Democracy Act. Does the administration support the Hong Kong Human Rights and Democracy Act? Thank you, Senator. The uh, administration supports uh, Hong Kong's autonomy, its uh, democratic systems, and all the others. Will uh, 
continue to uh, voice that, the protests in front of the, it, embassy. The, the, I appreciate that. Does it support the legislation that I just directed? That's my specific question. Yes, Senator. Uh, I need to take a longer look at the legislation and understand that. Well, I, I don't want to do so because it's a pretty bipartisan effort here, and we believe that uh, it's an appropriate one. So I'd like to get a clearer answer from the administration. Do you or do you not support it? Or do you have reservations about it? You know, we, we, we'd welcome participation, but uh, I think this is a moving vehicle. So I'd like to know where the administration is at on that. Also, does the administration believe that Hong Kong is fully autonomous as envisioned under the basic law? Senator, to date, <clears throat> and then given the uh, retraction of the Extradition Act, uh, the determination is still that uh, Hong Kong is in accordance with the Hong Kong Policy Act, has sufficient autonomy uh, to continue. What steps is the United States taking, if any, to make sure that crowd control equipment we export to Hong Kong isn't being used to commit human rights violation on the streets? I see that the British suspended their crowd control exports to Hong Kong. We find the use of, uh, as Amnesty International has verified, uh, rubber bullets, officers beating protesters who didn't resist, aggressive tactics uh, to obstruct journalists, the misuse of tear gas and pepper spray. What, what are we doing in this regard? Thank you, Senator. Uh, of course, our interest uh, in making sure that, uh, as the President said, you know, retain, maintaining uh, a uh, peaceful um, protest and avoiding violence to the max extent possible. So uh, we, Commerce and others, we carefully re review these applications for these sorts of uh, controlled goods on a case-by-case -case basis. And uh, in each instance, we weigh the uh, national security and foreign policy uh, and human rights implications of each of those sales. So we haven't been suspending any sales? So not to my point. knowledge. Well, it's something we should be considering, it seems to me, to continue to happen. Finally, let me ask you, you traveled recently to Japan and Korea. These are two incredible allies of the United States. And in our joint mutual security uh, and other interests, both on the Korean Peninsula and certainly as it relates to China, uh, the, maintaining that trilateral uh, unity is incredibly important. We have seen a devolution of the relationship between Japan uh, and South Korea over a series of issues. Uh, should we not be playing a role to bring these two allies together and stop the spiral downward and try to get to a better place so that we are not uh, ultimately on, you know, creating a, a risk and a vacuum here where China can particularly take advantage of? Thank you, Senator. I, I absolutely share your concern in that regard, and therefore, you'll understand that I've spent, uh, of my two and a half months on the job, a considerable amount of that time uh, working at my level with counterparts to, again, address both the concerns on both sides of uh, the Tsugaru Straits there. And, uh, you know, as far as actions, the Secretary's met with both sides trilaterally three, uh, eight times, the, uh, the President twice, most recently at the um, East Asia Summit. We held another uh, trilateral uh, meeting in early August, uh, endeavoring to get both sides to uh, approach this, uh, this, you know, this problem from a, a very positive and uh, productive standpoint. So we are actively engaged. Because that uh, activity may not be visible publicly, uh, it, it doesn't mean it's not happening. So. Um, Senator Menendez, I, I think your question regarding suspension of sales of those uh, really deserves uh, uh, a, a more looking at, and uh, particularly if the British have done it, I mean, they, they would know what's going on in there more than, better than we would. 
Um, so I, we, we probably ought to uh, take a look at that. Are, are you aware of any that are pending right now, or is it an ongoing, uh, ongoing sale? It's, it's an ongoing set of uh, sales. Okay. I, I think we ought to take a look at that. I, I think that's an excellent suggestion. Thanks so much. Uh, Senator Gardner. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Secretary Stilwell, for uh, your testimony today and joining us. Look forward to having you before the East Asia Subcommittee uh, in the near future. Um, just wanted to talk about the work that you identified in your statement. And many of the actions you've cited as taken toward Asia came out of the Asia Reassurance Initiative Act uh, that this committee passed last Congress that was signed into law on uh, New Year's Eve. Uh, in fact, uh, the appropriations bill that just came out of the state and foreign operations uh, appropriations subcommittee includes $2.5 billion uh, for ARIA implementation and an additional $2.5 billion for ARIA implementation. Uh, and I urge my colleagues to support that because of the work that we did in a bipartisan fashion on this committee. Uh, there's a lot of work we can do on national security, a lot of work we can do on economic opportunity, and of course human rights, democracy, rule of law uh, with the dollars now being appropriated to fully implement ARIA. Um, going to Hong Kong and uh, the point that Senator Menendez, Senator Risch were making, it, the Defense Authorization Act, the Senate passed a sense of Congress resolution uh, on July 28th that required and states uh, the United States uh, shall impose financial sanctions, uh, visa bans, and other punitive economic measures against all individuals and entities violating the fundamental human rights and freedoms of the people of Hong Kong. So my question is, does the administration plan or have plans to impose financial sanctions, visa bans, and other punitive measures against individuals and entities violating the fundamental human rights and freedoms of the people of Hong Kong? Sorry about that. Uh, I'll address your first question uh, on ARIA. Uh, I won't talk about BUILD this time. Um, great to have a, a law and a strategy that actually overlap and align. So I thank you and, and your colleagues for your support in that, in uh, making um, you know, the Indo-Pacific strategy a reality, because certainly it require, requires resources. On your second question, <clears throat> uh, Senator, I'm aware of there are a number of um, policy options. There's a number of legal options for dealing with these things. Uh, this has been going on for 100 days. This is a past anniversary. Uh, if Take, my response is that we take this extremely seriously in all interactions that I've been in with the secretary on this subject, with his uh, counterparts. Uh, this has come up prominently uh, and uh, strong advice to resolve this through dialogue peacefully, simply listen to what the protesters are asking. Uh, and I do believe that you have seen positive motion in that regard from Carrie Lamb and the others. So as far as identifying individuals uh, and, and then taking action uh, Certainly take that under advisement, and uh, we'll continue to uh, watch that. But uh, no action is planned right now. Senator, I have no uh, information on that regard. Thank you. Um, on Taiwan, Taiwan lost another uh, diplomatic ally, the Solomon Islands, this past week. Uh, on September 6th, as news was breaking about this uh, possibility, I sent a letter, a private letter, to the Prime Minister of Solomon Islands asking him to reconsider the decision to engage in a dialogue with the United States regarding uh, Taiwan as a global partner uh, in the Communist Party of China, the threat that it poses, uh, we didn't receive a response, and obviously we know the action the Solomon Islands has taken. Uh, what, uh, as a result, we've introduced a bill called the Taipei Act, uh, which uh, would require the administration to develop diplomatic uh, plans to help protect and preserve Taiwan's global leadership, dip diplomatic allies, and opportunities. Uh, what has uh, the administration done to, uh, to prevent this kind of uh, action from taking place again, losing additional uh, support, and uh, what other nations are considering these actions? Well, thank you, Senator. I guess uh, I can point to uh, actual 
actions taken, and that would be the Secretary's trip to Micronesia. I got to join him on that. Uh, and the, uh, the simple act of being visible in the region, I do think, uh, not in this particular case with Solomon Islands, but in general, uh, gives us um, something to point to, and it certainly reinforces and, and uh, uh, reassures the region that that U.S. is interested. As far as the, uh, again, Taipei Act, I completely uh, support the notion of, you know, this falls in line with Taiwan Relations Act and the uh, uh, Six Assurances, and those things that were designed to prevent this exact thing from happening, prevent Taiwan from its uh, international space being squeezed. Uh, and so, so does the administration support the Taipei Act? Senator, I it, it will, let me get back to you on the exact details on that. I can't speak for my boss on that one. I know we're aware of it, and uh, I, but I don't want to speak out of school. Uh, thank you, and I'm running out of time here. On ARIA, Asia Reassurance Initiative Act, I uh, just mentioned, um, you've talked about how it's informed uh, some of the actions you've taken. I'd like to learn more about how it was received in the region, uh, what people are saying about it. We can get that later, but I am concerned about uh, several reports that are overdue under ARIA right now, uh, pursuant to sections 205, 214, 305, and 306. Those reports are now overdue and would love to see uh, those reports completed. Uh, when it comes to North Korea, uh, could you give us an indication right now what you believe North Korea's nuclear production is? Senator, I can't, I can't have... Are I they still, they're still producing nuclear weapons? I assume they are, yes. Do we know how many nuclear productions, nuclear weapons? I will definitely get that to you in a separate uh, setting. Uh, and maximum pressure, uh, the doctrine of maximum pressure is still our policy toward North Korea? Senator, as far as I know, that's true, um, yes. Uh, and uh, do you believe that uh, any sanctions against North Korea should be lifted um, until they, or that no sanctions should be lifted until they demonstrate uh, a commitment toward complete, verifiable, irreversible denuclearization? Senator, the policy is still for full, uh, verified denuclearization, absolutely. And full, verified denuclearization is the same as complete, verifiable, irreversible denuclearization? Sure. Yes. Thank you. Thank you, um, uh, thank you, uh, Secretary Stilwell. I, I think this point that uh, Senator Gardner just raised regarding the Solomon Islands really uh, needs to be looked at. I think that's the, uh, the uh, canary in the mine. Uh, we all know, I, I, think, I don't think the American people are fully appreciative of how uh, uh, widespread China's uh, influence is around the world. They're in every country. Solomon Islands, you wouldn't think would be much, but there they are. And uh, they spend a lot of money, and money influences people, and uh, and that has uh, an effect on whether whether they're going to stay uh, recognizing Taiwan or not. So I, I think we're going to need to develop a strategy on that. We certainly can't uh, match their spending in as much as uh, uh, you know. We being a capitalist country, the capitalist controlled by the private sector, whereas in China, if they want to spend money in another country, and they are all over the world, they do it and they do it uh, easily and they don't have to go to anybody to get permission. So I think this is a, I think that's a really important point that you raised, Senator Gardner. Uh, Senator Cardin. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. And Secretary Stillwell, thank you very much for your service and thank you for being here. Uh, this is a critically important hearing. And I'm gonna start with Hong Kong uh, we, you've already been questioned in regards to the use of control, uh, crowd control devices and military type sales um, to uh, China and Hong Kong. I want to make this a little bit broader. 
It is clear we've seen in the last year to two years a crackdown on human rights by the Chinese government's influence in Hong Kong, affecting its autonomy. I think that's a, a factually indisputable point. When we passed the 1992 U.S.-Hong Kong Policy Act, which gave special status to Hong Kong, different than mainland China, we did that and said as long as they adopt international standards, Hong Kong. And we gave the president the power to adjust the benefits if there's less autonomy within Hong Kong itself. It seems to me that it's pretty clear there's less autonomy today than there was anticipated to be by this time. We were supposed to have independent elections. We haven't had that. We've had the protesters uh, harassed and, uh, and put in jeopardy. Is the administration have a process where they'll use the direction given by Congress in 1992 to leverage that for a change in direction by Chinese influence over Hong Kong, or if that's not achieved, to take specific action that could affect the status of Hong Kong? Senator, thanks for that question. It's, it's, um, it's difficult to uh, nail down exactly one aspect of that or, or one area we can push on. I, I would say that the, you know, I'm, I'm fully aware of the, of the act, uh, and we've been, we've been in a long discussion on its implementation. Uh, the impacts uh, on both the U.S. and on China, you know, if you know, the implementation takes place, uh, and uh, there's been a very fulsome discussion. So as far as your question on whether uh, there's activity or a process, we are deeply, uh, you know, we're engaged on this one. The, uh, and I'm going to keep pointing back to uh, the ability for the protesters to make changes. I would say uh, withdrawing the Extradition Act is a very positive step. Uh, and of course, it never should have been introduced in the first place, but I, I hear you. And they were able to, through a democratic process, uh, through their own voice and through uh, ma you know, large exertion, push back on what seemed to be a done deal. And so as far as autonomy, uh, I, I would say that it is essentially still uh, autonomous uh, enough. These are gradations, gray areas, and uh, uh, we will continue to discuss this, and, and we'd be happy to get back so, to you on that. So we're going to be stronger if the administration and Congress works together. Absolutely. And uh, that's why I would urge you to, to have open discussions with us. It can be in a closed setting. That's fine so that we're all on the same page as to how you're using the strategies. I remember when I first introduced the Nixie statute and ran into resistance from an administration, not this administration, that said, why are you bothering with what we do? In the end, I think everyone would acknowledge, including the administration, that Congress acting gave the administration more strength to advance our interest. Uh, Senator Rubio and I have introduced legislation in regards to Hong Kong, that would require certain reports annually to Congress on the status of autonomy in Hong Kong. I would urge you that that would help you because then you could explain to uh, the stakeholders that you have to report to Congress, that you don't have total discretion here, which gives you a stronger hand 
in an effort to bring about the proper conditions in Hong Kong. So I, I would just urge you to work with us and to we can achieve what was anticipated in 1992. Because quite frankly, I think we've seen in the recent years trends that have us extremely concerned. And I admit there have been victories, but we should be making progress, not just preventing negative things from happening. Senator, I appreciate that. And, uh, you know, I was up here t uh, two days last week uh, having these conversations with both the House uh, and the Senate side, and I will continue to do that. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, uh, Senator Cardin. Senator Romney. Secretary Stilwell, thank you for joining us today. It is my view that the greatest threat to freedom for America and, uh, and for the world uh, is a, uh, a China that decides to try and impose its authoritarian system on the world, uh, that it is our highest priority to dissuade China from that course uh, or to confront them if necessary to prevent them from taking that course. Do you agree with that? Senator, absolutely. Um, I would note that as the leader of the free world, that really falls on us uh, to bring the free world together to make sure that we're able to dissuade China from taking that path and, and threatening our freedom and the freedom of the world. They have developed quite clearly a, a strategy. You mentioned the difference between strategy and policy. I, I worked many years in a strategy consulting firm helping companies think about strategy. And, and I look at what they've done and I say, well, this is one of the most brilliant strategies I've ever seen. Uh, the Belt and Road means that they're going to have access to, to key raw materials. They're able to also send out their products out. Predatory pricing and industrial policies allow their industries to take over industries around the world on an unfair basis. Uh, basically um, managing and brainwashing their own citizens. Um, and then, of course, an influence campaign around the world with things like the Confucius Institutes here in our country where we're trying to tell school children a whole different message about authoritarianism and, and China. Um, and, and it is my hope that we as a nation will finally develop a true strategy as it relates to this highest priority in, in preserving our freedom. But one question in my mind is, what would the key elements be of such a strategy? What are our key advantages? What are, from your perspective, what do we have to have as the central part of a strategy to uh, uh, dissuade China from, uh, from imposing its will on the world or to confront them uh, when they do? Um, uh, do you have a sense of that, of things that you think make sense to be part of that? Yes. Senator, absolutely. I really appreciate that question. Um, the uh, Indo-Pacific strategy addresses those terms, uh, those things. Uh, the obvious one is security. I mean, uh, if you don't have stable um, you know, air and maritime lanes, you, your uh, ability to trade uh, is affected. China looks to uh, uh, you know, change that equation, uh, in, especially in the South China Sea. So the security uh, leg of the strategy is uh, important, but it's also the one we know best. The uh, second one is economics, uh, looking at things like infrastructure, uh, energy, uh, digital economy, these things that address exactly what you mentioned uh, in One Belt, One Road. And then, as I mentioned before, governance. And it's about uh, you know, transparency. The, the difference between open democratic systems and the system that you're, you mentioned uh, is the fact that one is very opaque, and they really don't want you to see what's going on in the background. And so one of my goals in, in this job is to work more closely with groups like the Global, Global Engagement Center and others uh, to again, expose these things, make them obvious to everybody. And, and once people see that, once the, you open this up, this is what uh, Australian John Garneau talks about, casting sunlight 
uh, on these problems, uh, they tend to go away on their own. An example would be maybe uh, Malaysia's election in uh, bringing Mahathir into uh, power, where it became clear that the One Belt, One Road and these things uh, weren't quite uh, what they seemed. That maybe there was some uh, elite capture and some deals going on that they didn't want the the electorate to see. And when exposed, it resulted in a different a change of uh, leadership. I would note from my perspective as well that, that one of the key elements, perhaps the key element as it relates to a strategy, is that we have friends and they tend not to have friends. And that linking with our, our friends and allies uh, to, to confront their scale, the, the sheer scale of their population, means that their economy will be enormous at some point. Um, and that, that, it, that tying closer to our friends is essential to the preservation of freedom. As uh, Ranking Member Menendez mentioned, just the, the fact that we have two friends in the area that are confronting one another is not in our interest. We very much want to have close relations, economic relations with other nations in the world, uh, military coordination and so forth. My impression is that the administration seems to be pushing away the world. And when we talk about America first, that we're, we're, we're giving a message that somehow we don't care about the rest of the world. I know that's not going to be your point of view, but isn't it very much in our interest to draw, draw in the world, to get closer economically, to perhaps, yeah, put pressure on China with tariffs on China or other economic sanctions uh, as needed, but that we should be doing just the opposite with the rest of the world, which is drawing in our friends, getting as close as we possibly can so that we can have the economic uh, and political might to dissuade a, a, a very authoritarian regime. Senator, thanks for that. That's a great point. And so I'll point to the, uh, we're talking about economics and allies. We'll point to the recent conclusion, of course, the uh, bilateral trade, uh, free trade agreement with the Koreans, and hopefully soon a similar free trade agreement with Japan uh, and other allies in the region, doing what we can, at least bilaterally, uh, to ensure uh, you know prosperity for both. Those things, as you mentioned earlier, uh, you know, the the lack of allies and partners uh, on the Chinese side uh, is a is a uh, you know it's a it's to their detriment. It has to do with like mindedness. And so uh, you know, I was just recently in Australia with the secretary. That relationship is going very well. Where the prime minister will be here this week. Uh, it, we also have been to Bangkok. I've been to Thailand twice in the, since I've been here, uh, working that relationship uh, positively. And again, I, I share your concern about making sure that our allies and partners are are uh, on board. Thank you. Mr. Chairman, let me just note that I'll be submitting for the markup later today uh, a, a, a proposal uh, to commit us to working with allies and partners both in Asia Pacific region and Europe to come up with a common policy to address the challenges we face from the rise of Asia. And I'll be hoping to get some uh, support from members of the committee. Thank you. Thank you, Senator Romney. Senator Shaheen. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Assistant Secretary Stilwell, thank you for being here. I want to change the subject. My home state of New Hampshire has one of the highest overdose death rates in the country based on the opioid epidemic. The highest percentage of those deaths are the result of fentanyl. And the vast majority of fentanyl that comes into the United States comes in from China. And despite previous agreements with the United States and China between the two countries, China said earlier this month that it has had only limited cooperation with the United States on reducing the illegal import of fentanyl into America. So do you agree with the Chinese government assessment? And can you talk more specifically to what we are doing to try and um, encourage China to work with us to keep fentanyl out of this country? 
Senator, thank you for that. And yes, I do agree that more can be done in, in the PRC to manage this problem. One of the statements they make is that we don't have a drug problem in China. And yet we do know that that drug is making it into our own country. So if they would apply those same standards domestically as they do when it leaves the country, uh, that would certainly help. Uh, I know the administration, before I came in, um, brought down a policy that allowed China um, the ability to use our postal service at rates uh, you know, uh, preferential. I do think that also helped as well. Uh, but I think, and I know the um, both working together, this is another issue that both the, the administration and the Congress share in concern and activity. I note uh, Senator Rubio uh, praised the passage of the Fentanyl Sanctions Act, uh, holding China accountable for its um, part in allowing this, this tragedy to continue. You didn't mention what more we're doing to try and get China to comply with the agreements that we've... Senator, you have my full commitment to uh, raise this in every uh, um, setting with them. Uh, I also know that they're in the negotiations through another agency that they have convinced the Chinese to tighten up their scheduling activity. Uh, and so variations of fentanyl don't continue to make their way in under some guise of that's not the one we were looking for. So I, there's positive action, but I'll continue to raise that. I, I would urge you and the State Department to do everything possible to try and keep fentanyl out. And you mentioned the Postal Service. We know much of that fentanyl comes in through the Postal Service, and yet this administration has threatened to withdraw from the Universal Postal Union, which would be detrimental to our efforts to try and keep fentanyl out of this country. Can you tell me why the administration is planning to do that and what we can do to try and urge that you reconsider that decision? Senator, thank you for that question. Uh, I'm not, I'm not going to do this all the time, but I will plead uh, ignorance on this one. I've spent half of my time in the job uh, downrange in the, in the region, and my opportunities to actually study up on all issues have been limited, but I'll take that one for Thank you. Okay. We will make sure we send a follow-up question and ask you to respond to it. Um, in 2017, the Federal Retirement Thrift Investment Board announced it would broaden the I-Fund to include China and other emerging markets. Um, Senator Rubio and I have sent a letter to the board expressing our concern about this change. It will come into force in 2020, and we believe it puts at significant risk nearly $50 billion in federal government employee retirement assets and that it undermines U.S. economic and national security interests because those dollars could go to China um, for many of its activities that aren't consistent with our democracy and our values. So given the Chinese company's lack of transparency and clear ties to the government, do you think this is something that the Thrift um, Savings Investment Board should reconsider? And has the State Department weighed in on this, or has the administration weighed, on the, weighed in on this in any way? Yeah, thanks, Senator. Uh, always conscious of staying in my lane. I share your concerns about transparency, as I mentioned earlier, in governance, the ability to understand how decisions are taken, and certainly in economics. Anytime you invest, you want to know what you're investing in. You want to know how those investments are being uh, managed. And so I, uh, I, I will look into that. But again, I don't want to speak out of turn. Well, thank you. And I appreciate the concern about staying in your own lane. I, I would argue that one of the challenges we have in the federal government is that we don't have enough interagency communication and cooperation as we address these issues. And that a broader strategy that includes um, everybody as we're thinking about these, everybody 
relevant within the government as we're thinking about some of these decisions would be a better approach because it would mean we could be more effective. So thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Shaheen. Uh, Senator Coons. Uh, thank you, Chairman uh, Risch and Ranking Member Menendez for organizing this hearing, and thank you, Assistant Secretary Stilwell, for sharing uh, your expertise and your views with us today. I appreciate your efforts uh, to communicate with us, and uh, I think we've already built up a significant list of uh, questions uh, where we are looking forward to your response about the administration's views on key pieces of legislation, the administration's actions with regards to fentanyl, with trade, with human rights, with quite a few issues, and so I'll add one more uh, to that pile if I might. Um, first, broadly, I do think it's critical uh, we work to reinforce our alliances in the region and reassure our partners the U.S. remains uh, committed to the Indo-Pacific. And while our military presence in uh, South Korea, Japan, elsewhere throughout the region uh, is critical, we also need diplomatic and economic tools to show the U.S. is indeed a Pacific power. Uh, in your testimony, you referenced infrastructure, energy, and digital as three a key linchpins um, to our efforts in the region and initiatives to try and increase private sector investment and to utilize initiatives like JUMP, uh, investments in transparency, the new Transaction Advisory Board. Um, and it was in your written testimony you referenced the One Belt, One Road um, effort by China as a way that they are uh, undermining um, in some ways uh, the sovereignty, the autonomy of nations throughout the whole region uh, and concerns that we share about transparency, responsible lending, and sustainable environmental practices. As you know, I'm sure uh, many of us work together uh, on this committee and with the administration uh, to get the BUILD Act passed and signed into law last year. It creates a 21st Century Development Finance Corporation, uh, which is about to launch, that will bring greater scope and scale to American efforts um, to mobilize uh, private capital um, to boost economic development. Uh, and it is my hope that it will be a genuine development finance corporation um, that will also tackle these questions and present a competing model of transparency and um, sustainability. Um, I'd be interested in hearing uh, in the many trips that you've been making to the region and that the secretary's made, um, what are you doing to help engage and educate uh, governments in the region about these new U.S. tools. In trips I took to Japan and South Korea earlier this year, I made a point of um, talking with um, both the leaders of their uh, domestic development finance uh, agencies uh, and with their leaders about this. How do you see us using this tool going forward? Senator, thank you very much for that. Uh, let me start off by noting, uh, certainly share your concerns about uh, getting at the infrastructure question in the region. And I'll speak to the Indo-Pacific uh, yeah, certainly my, my uh, part of the world. We've seen um, uh, other in infrastructure programs from other countries uh, have, had, uh, have been popular. I do think there has been and will be increasingly buyer's remorse uh, for uh, One Belt, One Road projects. At the same time, and not necessarily tied to that, you uh, have seen an increased uh, interest in uh, taking advantage of the economic and investment benefits uh, that come from uh, developing infrastructure where it's needed. And we know uh, off the top of my head, it's something like $27 trillion of infrastructure need, and yet there's $70 trillion of capital looking for places to invest, looking for solid investments, looking for investments that will pay off vice these uh, uh, projects we've seen, Bridges to Nowhere and other things. And so uh, the fact that an old fighter pilot can actually say that with some fluency tells you that I'm, you know, 
getting up on the step on this one. But I'd like to point to the, uh, a part of that, the upcoming uh, Indo-Pacific Business Forum uh, that's going to happen in Bangkok on the 4th of November on the sidelines of the East Asia Summit, uh, where we're encouraging um, uh, CEOs, Congress, and other uh, U.S. leaders to come uh, share their ideas, opportunities, uh, information with these countries to make sure they understand there is not just one choice. It's not just uh, this one project this one system, but there's a, a, a great opportunity to use not just the U.S. And we've been talking to allies and partners. You know, Japan's been very active in this region, Korea, Australia, others. And so th the strength in this process as it continues to mature is that it's going to be a very broad uh, uh, and uh, give these countries choices that they right now don't have. Well, I've, I've spent... Um a significant amount of time in my early years here um, focusing on Africa. Uh, the difference in terms of infrastructure investment and engagement in Africa in particular is just stunning. And in the Indo-Pacific, uh, I really hope the administration will work closely with our regional allies, Australia, um, the South Koreans, the Japanese, as you mentioned, as well as our European allies, the Scandinavians, UK and French, um, and move quickly. Uh, because this new capacity should be up and running in a matter of a month or two uh, I've met with uh, the nominee who we're considering soon to run it, who I think can be quite capable, agile, and with these new resources, we should be able to put on the world stage uh, a competing model for how to do development in a responsible and transparent way. Uh, I very much look forward to working with you on it uh, and look forward to hearing from you how you think we might be able to be constructive in, it, in accelerating the deployment of this new tool. Thank Senator, you. Thank you. So pleased to have you with us. So the administration has been relatively silent on the genocide in, in Burma regarding the Rohingya. And uh, reportedly because of concern about driving Burma closer to China. But does that silence or near silence on genocide in Burma undermine USA credibility as a champion of human rights in general? Senator, I appreciate, uh, appreciate your question. Um, we've had lots of discussions on this topic. Um, there has been action taken. I think you're aware um, that we've sanctioned um, you know, all military officials uh, and their families subject to visa restrictions with the Jade Act. There's been GLOMAG uh, activity as well. Uh, this is clearly a, a, uh, you know, of high interest to uh, this administration. Uh, and it will continue to be as we work with Burma to help them understand the importance of, uh, you know, democratic principles that we all share. And so I will continue to uh, work that. Uh, I have yet to get to Burma uh, in my travels, but it's on the list. And so, again, I look forward to getting to interact personally and share this message. Uh, thank you. I really encourage you to speak out forcefully because we were very late to doing any sort of sanctions on Burma after much of the international community acted. President of the United States has never spoken publicly uh, condemning the, the genocide. Uh, and it uh, has given a, a lot of interest to others around the world that they can get away with, with uh, severe, horrific action against minorities without the US raising its voice in a powerful way. So I'd love to see us, even at this point, uh, speak out even we're two years past. Uh, the Senate passed last week the Uyghur Human Rights Act. And the administration has been independently, uh, reportedly considering visa bans against uh, Xinjiang officials uh, because of the treatment of Uyghurs under the Global Magnitsky Act. 
Uh, do you see the administration acting uh, uh, quickly uh, to highlight and, and uh, use Global Magnitsky Act in regard to the Xinjiang officials who are basically treating a population almost like, like slaves? Senator, I appreciate that perspective. And yes, uh, the conditions, the, the uh, activities in Xinjiang are of uh, great concern. And it, certainly to me, uh, the administration and to the, the world, you're seeing uh, Australians have definitely taken this one up, uh, a, a documentary, and this is coming out of non-government, uh, on the, uh, you know, what they could find on this. If, you know, my concern is if there's nothing bad happening in Xinjiang, why is it so difficult to get out there and see it? You know, why can't, if there's nothing wrong, we should be able to trans travel there uh, on our own and go see for ourselves. I got to travel there when I was the defense attache, and the uh, security environment was eye-watering. Um, and there, there are issues there. And it has to do, again, with the uh, interpretation of, of what constitute human rights. Uh, and so we will continue to work with our counterparts. Uh, and we have uh, opportunity coming up here uh, next week at the General Assembly and others, and we'll raise this. I think it'd be great to hear the U.S. raise it. The, uh, we keep hearing that the administration is delaying action because they don't want it as a factor during the trade negotiations with China. But I think for the administration to really uh, delay acting sends another a message that we're abdicating leadership on human rights. The Senate has acted and, and passed the Uyghur Human Rights Act uh, last week, and it includes uh, my amendment that says there will be Magnitsky sanctions unless China provides independent human rights monitors with unfettered access. And I'd love to see the administration get behind that, that, that vision. I want to turn to the Hong Kong Human Rights and Democracy Act. Um, we didn't get a very clear answer when it was raised by my, my colleague, but I thought I'd mention a couple of the key provisions and see if the administration supports them. One is to assess whether China has uh, eroded Hong Kong's civil liberties as protected by Hong Kong's basic law. Would, would, would you and the administration support such an, an assessment? Senator, I would definitely support uh, a conversation on uh, and, and we are ongoing uh, assessing and evaluating the current status uh, in accordance with the, the uh, human rights and democracy and as well as the Hong Kong Policy Act. A second provision allows Hong Kong residents to work and study in the U.S. if individuals have been arrested for participating in nonviolent protests. Is that a provision the administration would support? Senator, I will, I will take a look at that and make sure. A third provision is that the President report to Congress a list of individuals responsible for abducting, torturing, people exercising internationally recognized human rights in Hong Kong, and banning such individuals from entering the U.S. and imposing sanctions on them. Would the administration support that provision? Senator, I'm offering the same answer on that. I, I don't want to get out ahead of the administration. As I said, uh, this subject has come up uh, you know, in my interaction with this interaction with the secretary has come up at every opportunity uh, in strong words to uh, discourage further um, negative actions in Hong Kong. The president has been very clear as well on uh, insisting on a humane resolution um, and the rest. So, I, yeah, the, the, we share your concern. A fourth provision, this is the last one, uh, Mr. Chairman, uh, is a report requiring a report on the evasion 
of sanctions that China would, is required through UN resolutions to put on sanctions or export controls using Hong Kong to evade actually applying those, including as it applies to North Korea. Um, I will just note that this is a significant issue of Hong Kong being used to allow China to not enforce uh, sanctions and export controls. I'd, I'd love to see the administration take a, a very strong stand on all three of these uh, areas with Burma, with the Uyghurs, uh, with Hong Kong. Thank you. Thank you, Senator. Senator Cruz. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Welcome. Thank you for your testimony today. Um, this week, there were very concerning reports that the Solomon Islands plan to sever their ties with Taiwan in favor of China. Uh, what message do you think this sends to the region, and, and, and what can the U.S. do to help prevent our allies from succumbing to economic or military pressure exerted by the PRC? Senator, thanks for that question. Um, yeah, the late breaking news uh, on that is, was unfortunate, uh, and you know, it's part of a larger uh, strategy to slowly squeeze Taiwan's uh, international space. And you know, this is why there is a Taiwan's Relation, Relations Act. This is why I'm very familiar with it, and uh, will insist that we uh, continue to abide by that. In, in addition to uh, uh, you know agreements such as the uh, third communique, which indicates that. Uh, in order to resolve this issue through dialogue and peacefully, as we all agreed to do, that there, there are certain things we're going to have to do. Uh, arms sales, uh, as you note, about $10 billion of arms sales in 2019 alone in a, of a defensive nature to ensure that Hong Kong, I mean, that Taiwan has the opportunity to negotiate uh, in dialogue with the, the, the PRC. So uh, as far as protecting uh, it's international space. Again, we are very actively involved in that. As I mentioned earlier, the, the secretary stopped through um, the uh, Micronesia. Uh, you know, that's a hard stop to make, and we still went out there to demonstrate U.S. concern, interest, and uh, commitment in the, in the area. The 2017 U.S. national security strategy describes China as a, quote, competitor. Uh, the 2018 National Defense Strategy refers to China as a strategic competitor. And then the 2019 Intelligence Strategy puts China in the category of adversaries. Uh, what is, is the intended implications, if any, of, of, of these various labels, and, 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 and how do you view China going forward? Senator, as you know, words matter. As I said previously, that we need to choose them very carefully, uh, in my mind, especially with regard to ensuring that we're talking about the Communist Party and not the people. But in this case, um, I think strategic competitor has the, the right flavor. You know, from my time in Beijing um, eight years ago, uh, we were hoping that we would come to that realization sooner than later. Uh, the, I, I'm not going to parse words on the, on the Intel report. I'm not sure of its uh, authoritativeness. But the point is that the U.S. administration, the Congress, uh, have all uh, come to the conclusion that this thing, uh, we, we need to kind of get busy and, and take active steps to deal with this, this thing. And as mentioned earlier, um, allies and partners' uh, presence, visibility, and uh, again, all the things the administration has done to date, I, I think, address this. 
Now, China is, of course, investing billions in the Belt and Road Initiative, is also actively promoting espionage, um, and is also pushing Huawei to, to build the infrastructure of 5G along with the capacity of China to uh, monitor and intercept communications uh, among our allies. What is your assessment of how effective what China is doing on each of those fronts, and, and what more should we be doing to press back? Senator, I think one of the great aspects of you know, our country and our system and the system and the, that our like-minded allies and partners share is uh, we're comparatively slow to anger. We, we tend to give the benefit of the doubt. And so uh, I think we've been hopeful that the, the Chinese you know, cyber uh, strategy uh, would be resolved. And we've been talking about this for years, this is not, not just uh, in the last three years, but trying to get at China's intent with uh, using cyber to its own benefit. Uh, in the case of Huawei now, we have finally come to realize, and we're trying to encourage others to ad admit and understand that the systems here are under the direct control of the Chinese government. They have laws that say that uh, Chinese companies will release information uh, you know, at the, the Chinese government's uh, direction. And so the fact that it's in this, we're talking about in this hearing, says I think it has achieved that level of awareness. Others are aware of the problem. And... Uh, you know, and we'll continue to work uh, on offering alternatives, pushing other, um, uh, you know, people want better um, technology, and I think we need to help uh, get to that. So one, one final question. Uh, Washington has believed for decades that, that we could change China uh, into a friend by trading with them, uh, and, and yet we're seeing evidence that at least some of the reverse is playing out. Um, that China is ch changing the behavior of American companies. So multiple U.S. airlines designated Taiwan as a Chinese province uh, in order to maintain access to China. Uh, Google began development of Project Dragonfly, uh, a search engine compliant with the great firewall censorship requirements. Apple has located uh, iCloud servers in China in cooperation with the Chinese state-owned enterprise, and Thermo Fisher has exported AI technology for, quote, law enforcement purposes in, in China. Um, how should the United States think through a, a, a framework for economic cooperation when we're seeing American companies uh, being co-opted into helping the, the, the communist government maintain power and maintain oppression? So that's a great question. There is plenty that the government can do, uh, but in the end, uh, you know, there's a business model here that looked too good to be true and is quickly uh, being understood to be not all that it appears to be. And so you're seeing businesses recognize this as they uh, now look for other places, both as markets and as you know, um, you know, places to do business, and they're leaving uh, for other destinations where maybe labor costs are lower or maybe the uh, business environment is better. And so obviously the government, uh, certainly this administration, has taken pretty significant steps uh, to help business understand the downside of um, you know, what the things that you mentioned. And you are seeing positive change uh, in that regard as it diversifies, as people look at different markets and the rest, which I think is economically a healthy idea, rather than have it all in one place. 
Thank you. Thank you, Senator Cruz. Uh, Senator Kane. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Uh, thank you, Secretary Stilwell. Two, two uh, suggestions and a question. So the suggestions, your testimony, written testimony, uh, contains a lot of references to the U.S. strategy of maintaining adherence to international law, rules, and standards, promoting freedom of the seas, ensuring freedom of navigation. On page three, you point out, at the East Asia Summit Ministerial, the Secretary made a clear statement on China's bullying in the South China Sea and urged ASEAN and China to move forward with a meaningful code of conduct that comports with UNCLOS. How about we just, as the United States, join UNCLOS? I mean, the notion that we are going to try to tell everybody that they should follow UNCLOS when we are one of the few countries in the world that hasn't joined it strikes me as foolish. Many administrations have tried this. Every, every current living Secretary of State, Secretary of Defense, says it would be a good thing for the country. We visited Indo-PACOM in Hawaii in April, and we're told by Indo-PACOM it would be a good thing for the country. This would be something that the Trump administration could do to achieve enforcement of freedom of the seas and others that other administrations have not been able to do. If the president would be forceful for it, we could get it done. Um, and so I would, I would urge the administration to do something that other administrations haven't been able to do. That could be a win, and it could achieve what you testify you hope to achieve. Uh, second, Senator Romney asked you what were the elements of the framework, and you mentioned some elements, but he added to it, alliances have to be key to this. Um, many of us hoped to have a Trans-Pacific partnership that would unify us with other nations in the region and serve America's interest there. Um, a third of the Democrats voted for fast-track authority to give the president the ability to negotiate a deal. Uh, many of us were disappointed with the ultimate product on the enforcement side. We liked many of the substantive provisions, but we didn't think the enforcement provisions were strong enough. President Trump announced he was terminating those discussions, and the deal has gone forward anyway without the United States. But Again, if we're serious about alliances, I would encourage the administration to take a look at what they ended up with and decide what additional protections, enforcement, or otherwise the United States might want to get in. But I think that would both cement alliances and uh, put us together in a strong way to compete economically against China. And the, third, and the question I want to ask you is this, and I know it was referred to before I came the tensions between Korea and Japan. Um, we were in Korea, a group of nine of us, uh, Senator Portman and I were in that group in April. And these are wonderful allies of the United States. We have very strong relationships, economic, uh, uh, military cooperation, but they have significant tensions between them right now. The president is at least publicly reported they're trying to schedule a meeting with the South Korean president next week connected to the UN General Assembly. What? could the U.S. do to try to help, um, you know, bring uh, Korea and Japan closer together in this current political environment of those countries? Senator, thank you for that. Uh, the, the, I think the answer is what has the administration done to date as we saw this uh, process beginning to, uh, you know, this kind of uh, tit-for-tat begin. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, the secretary has met trilaterally uh, eight times. The president's met trilaterally twice. Um, uh, as you would imagine, we, you know, we continue to work with both sides. I was just in Seoul uh, and, and was talking to uh, Ambassador Harris about other things we can do. 
Uh, I've met with my counterparts multiple times uh, early August, especially in Bangkok while we were all together, to encourage both sides just to take a pause <clears throat> and, and look at resolution versus uh, continuing to uh, express uh, their concern. Uh, as you mentioned, these alliances are, key, are very important and the um, trilateral nature of that sends a very strong message to the region. So I will tell you that we will continue working and uh, encouraging them both to look for positive uh, solutions to this current issue. Thank you, uh, Senator Kane and uh, Secretary Stilwell, thanks for your patience today. I understand that uh, the chair and ranking member are likely to come back after votes, so we're going to go into recess in a second here, and I'm going to literally run to the vote, but I want to have a chance to ask you a couple questions first. Uh, I was at the Department of Transportation this morning. I missed some of your responses, but uh, it sounds like China was central to many of the discussions today, and there's good reason for that, whether it's uh, the issue of North Korea or Taiwan or the Belt and Road expansions or uh, what's going on in Hong Kong today as we sit here, uh, Tibet, the Uyghurs, other human rights issues, whether it's the cyber uh, attacks that were talked about earlier or whether it's the trade issues and the obvious uh, instances of unfair trade. Uh, China's kind of in the middle of a lot of issues. One that uh, I don't know if it got discussed yet today is the fentanyl problem. In Ohio, we have had a epidemic and more people have died from overdoses in Ohio than any other cause of death in the last few years. Finally, last year we made a little progress, but even within that progress you see that the killer is fentanyl. It's by far the number one cause of death. Uh, probably two-thirds of our deaths in 2017 that we've been able to analyze came from fentanyl, often mixed with other drugs, uh, more recently with crystal meth, not just other opioids. It's coming from China. We know that. Uh, I chair the Permanent Subcommittee Investigations. We, we did an um, investigation of this issue, and it was very clear that it comes through the U.S. mail system primarily and primarily from China. I've been there. I've spoken to Chinese officials about this. Um, we passed the STOP Act, which requires them to provide advanced data to let our law enforcement know which packages are likely to be vulnerable by knowing where it's from, what's in it, where it's going. But they could do much more in terms of shutting down these chemical companies that illicitly are producing this deadly poison that's coming into our communities. They could do more to stop these evil scientists who are taking these precursors. So what should we be doing on this? And um, are, are you as discouraged as I am about the fact that after years of raising this with the Chinese, we continue to see a flow of fentanyl coming from China that could be stopped? Senator, I do share your concern on that. And uh, there um, have been a number of things done. I think there's more that can be done uh, to, uh, again, stop the flow of, of uh, this drug. Uh, there's been success in getting China to uh, actually create a scheduling uh, regime that you know, puts drugs like fentanyl in a certain controlled um, bin, which would, in theory, prevent that from making it to the U.S. Unfortunately, uh, you know, chemicals can morph and change, and the scheduling uh, process has to acknowledge that and incorporate all of those. Uh, the administration's taken steps on the U.S. Postal Service to uh, deny and take down China's ability to use our postal mm -hmm. service uh, at very uh, inexpensive rates uh, and also uh, affect the ability to use our own uh, mail service to move this drug to the U.S. Uh, you know, this comes up in, in bilateral interaction. They are a sovereign country. I mean, in the end, there's only so much we can do. 
but I do think that uh, the pressure has been steady and continuous and will continue uh, over time. And you have seen some um, uh, impact. On the other hand, there is, uh, you know, by his own admission, the president of China says that there, there is no drug China, there is no drug problem in China, and yet it's coming here, which tells you they have the ability to control it. Maybe they should, ex you know, exercise more of that. Yeah. Well, effort. listen, I, I just urge you to continue to raise it at every level and at every meeting. It seems unrelated maybe to some of the other issues I listed, but it's not uh, because it directly affects American citizens and families and is devastating our communities, tearing families apart. Um, and we need to do more here on the demand side. We're doing that, uh, having some success, but it's so cheap and so powerful. And uh, China can and must do more. On the trade front, uh, what we're looking for is really very simple. We're looking for a relationship that's grounded in fairness, in reciprocity, um, and in respect for sovereignty. And my thinking is on so many of these issues where you know, China is taking on sort of the, the global trading system and the system that has created so much prosperity around the world, um, it's China that actually has benefited from that more than any other country. If you think about it objectively, you know, they are a huge export power. They are now a major trading partner. And you would think they'd want to work with us on fairness, reciprocity, and respect for sovereignty. My hope is that in October, we have some good meetings um, and that we are able to move forward. The Secretary of Transportation or Secretary of Treasury um, and the U.S. Trade Representative, I know, are, are eager to roll up their sleeves in October and, and make something happen uh, to get back to at least where we were in May and uh, move forward. Do you have any thoughts on this? Let me just give you one data point that I, I assume um, the government of China knows. Um, recent study by UBS of CFOs of export-oriented manufacturers found that one-third of the companies uh, in China uh, that are foreign companies have moved at least some production out of China in 2018. Another one-third of the companies in China, foreign investment in China, intend to do so in 2019. So there is a movement out of China in part because of the trade issues and particularly the issue of intellectual property and technology transfer. Um, do you have thoughts on that, whether the Chinese government realizes we're seeking fairness, we're seeking reciprocity, we're respecting their sovereignty, but we do need to see these changes, but they do too in order to continue their economic expansion? Senator, uh, strong feelings on this one and uh, getting to see the, the steadfast and unblinking approach to, we knew this was not going to be a quick thing, right? This is not going to go over, uh, you know, this is the lifeblood of the, the Communist Party, is to continue a growth rate that supports uh, its, its, uh, its goals uh, for, uh, you know, prosperity. You know, by 2049, they, they want to be a, uh, you know, a strong, wealthy nation. They have metrics for, that need to be achieved by 2021 and 2049. But those have to be achieved, as you say, in a way that uh, treats both sides with respect, mutual benefit, and fairness. And that has been where we, it's been falling down. And so I think you'd agree that the uh, president has taken some very strong and effective steps in letting the Chinese know that this sort of behavior uh, is going to end, uh, that we look for a uh, trade partner, and we look for, as they say, true win-win outcomes uh, that where both sides benefit uh, equally. So uh, completely share your, your concern. Yeah, so I think you can communicate perhaps in a way that's uh, different than our negotiators can to China about the importance of coming to a resolution and why it's in their interest uh, and 
more broadly in their interest to have the global trading system continue to be effective because they are benefiting from it more than anyone else. Um, and, and that's fine. If it's fair, if it's reciprocal, um, we, we should all be able, you know, to have trade back and forth between our countries. Um, but that, to me, that UBS uh, analysis that I mentioned to you and also just the reality that the United States and other countries are, are finally at the point where we've had enough and we're going to have to see, you know, some uh, increased fairness. Um, and us, for us, the 301 case, uh, you know, is leading these negotiations, but it's even broader than that for many countries around the world that are watching to see what happens. Um, and my hope is many of those countries will join us. Um, I see my colleague, Senator Young, has joined us. Uh, assuming he has voted, uh, I, will, I will turn to you. Have you already voted? I have. Excellent. Okay, we were going to go yes. into recess yes. during the vote, yes. but, yeah. but you're here to take us through, so. Yeah. Senator Thanks Young. so much. Yeah. I thank my colleague. So um, I also thank you, Assistant Secretary. I understand you uh, recently visited several of our Asian partners and, and uh, allies, and we're engaged in important conversations uh, related to our nation's security, their security, uh, ways that we can uh, work together in furtherance of our, our mutual economic goals, uh, uh, moving forward. These, um, these partners and allies, uh, one might argue, in addition to our, our own American values, which uh, I would regard as, as Western values, are our most important asset as a country, geopolitically speaking. And so it's, it's, it's essential as we sort of look at, at the globe that we maintain these security and, and economic relationships, as I know uh, the administration's been emphasizing. Countries that uh, border or are within, you know, sort of uh, the, the Southeast Asian, South Asian area are, are left with, um, at, you know, essentially a binary choice. They can either be accommodationist towards a power that increasingly is adventurous in its behavior, is sort of revisionist with respect to uh, grabbing pieces of ocean and real estate, and um, they've acted unlawfully um, economically uh, with respect to running a foul of WTO rules. So they could be accommodationist towards a power like that, or they can take a chance. They can take a chance on the United States, on what was until recently called the liberal international economic order of, of, of rules and norms and expectations. And much of that depends on the United States and the reassurance that we give our partners. So I guess the question I had to ask of you, Assistant Secretary, is, is as you made your travels, were there particular things that our, our partners in the Asia-Pacific region, especially Southeast Asia, indicated they are seeking from the United States in terms of reassurance moving forward? Senator, that's a great, a great question. You know, you know, reassurance is the one thing, uh, it doesn't cost a lot, uh, and it's always in short supply. You know, it, it, every time we uh, travel to uh, either an ally partner or just a, uh, you know, a, you know a, a fellow capital, uh, one, they're very happy to see the Americans there. Uh, it gives them that weight, so it's not a binary choice. They can 
uh, you know, the word choice is interesting. We're, we're allowing, uh, allowing them to choose their own sovereignty, vice to be issued, uh, a, a, you know, an order to say you can do it this way or you're not, you know, you're not going to get anything for it. And so I think in short, the answer to your question is uh, just physical presence. And it's not just me or the administration. I mean, certainly when Congress travels, you carry that same message to these capitals. And it's a, a message of reassurance. Uh, it's a calming message. And it's a message of like-mindedness that, that, you know, we believe your sovereignty is the number one concern. We share that. We, you know, uh, we share that uh, the interest in sovereignty and, and then giving you real choices that you can make that benefit you. Uh, and your country. And, and this is where the idea of transparency really comes into play in that those uh, maybe leaders who s are going to um, t make deals that they may, may not want their countries, to see, their, their people to see, uh, that only works for a short time. And so um, those who don't necessarily share those, those uh, democratic principles will eventually, as in the case of uh, you know, recent countries, uh, those things will come to light. And then they were going to have to answer for that. And so all we ask is that these deals be transparent. And, and one of the programs that the administration has got is a, a tr transaction. Uh, it's called TAR. And it helps these countries look at and assess through a legal lens uh, the deal they've been given, the contract they've been given, and look for the holes in it uh, that may not comport with uh, maintaining their sovereignty. So we're certainly taking active steps in that regard. That's helpful. So um, one of the things I heard is, is the importance of, of presence. During my time in the Navy, uh, we, we heard about the importance of naval presence that extends, I think, to the economic and, and diplomatic realm. And we in Congress, I agree, we, we play an important role in making sure that we carry the flag of the United States of America to these capitals, visiting world leaders and, and uh, reassure our allies and partners that were with them. And then that presence needs to be backed uh, with, with resources where necessary, military, uh, diplomatic, developmental, and, and, and so forth. And, and uh, uh, to the extent you can make this body aware of, of the particular tools as you just have uh, that you're hearing a real need for, an appetite for, um, in your travels, um, that's, uh, that's very helpful because we want to partner with the administration on this effort. So thanks again for your presence here today. And um, I do not see, I do not see uh, the chairman present. So, uh, so we will, yeah, so uh, I will unilaterally suspend the hearing at this point. Yeah. Irrespective of any parliamentary words I must utter, I hereby, I hereby suspend this hearing, sir. You can, um, you can go um, you can take care of yourself in, in some private setting. All right? Yeah. I'm out of here. Committee will come back to order. Thank you so much. Uh, as usual, we struggled through the interruption, but here we are. So with that, uh, Senator Menendez, the floor is yours. Thank you, Mr. Uh, Mr. Chairman. You know, uh, uh, Senator Young said he suspended the hearing. I thought it was martial law. That <laughs> so, uh, anyhow, but I'm glad that the Secretary stayed. Uh, a couple of quick final questions. Um, I remain concerned that the administration created the appearance that our security commitment to Taiwan is up for negotiation with Beijing over U.S.-China trade issues. Uh, can you tell, Mr. Secretary, this committee now that our relationship with Taiwan is guaranteed by the law 
under the Taiwan Relations Act is not being used as a bargaining chip by the administration? Senator, I can confirm that. And uh, nothing speaks louder than uh, $10 billion in um, defen you know, defensive uh, weapons sales this year. Uh, that shows a commitment uh, to ensuring that Taiwan has the ability to, uh, you know, uh, stand up to and negotiate in, in, from a position of equality and not uh, from weakness. I, I agree with that. That's why I, from, to the extent that my role, uh, along with the chairman of approving arms sales, I approved that rather quickly, but then it was held up by the administration, and it is that holding up that creates concerns for me uh, that... Uh, leads to the question. So I'm glad to hear you reaffirm unequivocally uh, that uh, we are not using Taiwan as a bargaining chip with China over other issues that we have. Uh, let me ask you about the role that we've spent a lot of time with China and Japan and uh, uh, South Korea and uh, on, uh, meritly so on Hong Kong, but several administrations have sought to deepen the U.S. relationship with India in order to address the rise of China in Asia. And while that defense relationship has grown from being essentially non-existent following the end of the Cold War, there are still questions about the possibilities for security cooperation between Washington and Delhi, which has roots in a historical Indian approach of non-alignment in foreign affairs. Uh, India's border dispute with China last year in Dokkam uh, helped to bolster the security partnership with the United States, but a lot of work, I think, remains. What do you see as obstacles uh, to deeper defense cooperation between the United States and India? And given these obstacles, what do you see as realistically possible? Senator, thank you for that question. And if Alice Wells, SCA, was sitting right here, I would certainly pass that question to her, uh, as India is not in the EAP uh, responsibility. But I will say, uh, that I met with Alice yesterday, and we had this conversation on uh, doing a better job of stitching together East Asia Pacific and South, South and Central Asia to make sure that that black line between Bangladesh and Burma, between Central Asia republics and China uh, and the like is uh, much less solid, that it's more gray, and that any actions we take are in consultation and coordinated. And so we can get exactly at the point you make about you know, bringing India in uh, into the EAP uh, region as a uh, like-minded um, security uh, provider. The uh, Quad is uh, ongoing. We're hearing lots of great things at Delhi on, um, again, participating with Japan and Australia and the U.S. on shared uh, security interests. As far as details on the Indian uh, military capabilities, I'm going to have to i get back to you on that. I'd appreciate that. I think it's hard to have an Indo-Pacific strategy without understanding the Indo side of that. So uh, uh, I'd look forward to you uh, giving us an assessment. And, if it's, and I'm happy to you to work with your colleague to give us that assessment. So uh, lastly, um, I want to follow up on something that uh, our colleague, Senator Gardner, raised with you. Uh, as I said in my opening statement, we've been concerned that the Indo-Pacific strategy of the administration hasn't been resourced. In fact, in the past, it has uh, had uh, funds cut. Uh, and I know as an uh, Air Force general, I'm sure you're familiar with the adage, you show me your budget and I will tell you your strategy. Uh, so uh, we've been concerned that there has been great rhetoric, uh, but no resources that make a strategy.
I don't know if you're aware that in this year's Foreign Operations Bill, the Senate Foreign Operations Committee has provided $2.55 billion to support the Indo-Pacific strategy, an increase of about a billion dollars over the President's budget request. I think I applaud the appropriators in a bipartisan way for doing that. I support it. Can I get your commitment today that you'll endeavor to ensure that all those funds are fully expended as Congress directs and that none of those funds will be subject to rescission or other unconstitutional or illegal withholding by OMB or the administration? Senator, absolutely appreciate the uh, support from the Congress and making my job a lot easier uh, as you see the administration and the Congress working closely together and you're seeing both uh, as a bipartisan support for this uh, these bills and this activity. Uh, I'll just note that uh, the um, EAP, my budget, has uh, uh, been increased by 47%, as you mentioned, resourcing the strategy uh, as, and uh, helping me and us do a better job to support your uh, direction as well as we coordinate with you. So again, we thank you for all the, um, the uh, uh, legislation that supports the, the administration's Indo-Pacific strategy and um, our shared uh, desire to get at this problem. Well, I, I, I tell you, uh, Mr. Secretary, you have adapted well from the military regime uh, to the State Department regime, uh, which isn't always very responsive. So let me return to my question. Uh, and that is, uh, I thought that was a compliment. Well, it depends which depends where you sit. In any event, my key question here is that if we resource something, if Congress has the intent to say this is where we want money spent, we need you to execute on it. Uh, otherwise, uh, then we are resourcing a strategy that we, in a bipartisan way, agree, but then to see those resources either not executed upon and therefore fall to some other purpose or be redirected. If you're executing on the strategy and committing the resources, then we won't fall into that set of circumstances. So let me rephrase the question and maybe get a more direct response. Can I expect you to assiduously execute once you receive these funds uh, within your lane on the issues that we are resourcing so that we can see them expend in a timely fashion to accomplish the goal? Senator, I will be a very careful steward of the uh, funds provided in accordance with the law as, as directed. Mm -hmm. Now, a careful steward uh, can either uh, take an inordinate amount of time to execute or can execute in an appropriate amount of time. So I appreciate every member of the executive branch being a careful steward of Congress's appropriations. My, my, my goal, and I'm not trying to trap you into something, I'm trying to get to, uh, if, we're, if we're actually finally resourcing what you need to do to execute the strategy that we believe in a bipartisan way will get us to a better position in the Indo-Pacific region, but it will take you to execute on it in a prompt, yes, efficient, and yes, uh, uh, steward-like fashion as a fiduciary. But am I, am I going to expect that you're going to execute on this in a way that we will not see at the end, of, if we see at the end of this period of time an excessive amount of money that has not been spent in pursuit of the strategy, then one of two things exists. Either that strategy doesn't need that much money, in which case we'll have to reconsider it, uh, or 
uh, it's purposeful at the end of the day to leave resources for other purposes. Can I expect you to execute on it in a timely fashion to assure that we achieve the goal that we have resourced? Senator, to the best of my ability, I will do that. All right, thank you very much. Thank you, Senator Menendez. Um, Secretary Stilwell, thank you so much uh, for uh, coming here today and, uh, and giving us the, the benefit of, uh, of your view and uh, your testimony. For the information of the members, the record will remain open until the close of business on Friday. We'd ask that the witness respond as promptly as possible, and uh, your responses, of course, will be made part of the record. So nothing else for the good of the order. The committee is adjourned. <laughs>